Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, it's lovely to see so many of you. Um, thanks for joining us here at this beautiful theatre. Um, no doubt many of you will be seeing the show itself later on, and I hope that this uh, discussion uh, serves as a useful entry point for the show. I'm joined tonight by uh, three wonderful guests who I'd like to introduce to you first of all. Um, perhaps I should introduce myself first of all. Um, my name is Dominic Simmons, uh, and I'm Professor of Musical Theatre at the University of Lincoln. Um, and here to my right, uh, this is John Wilson, who is tonight's conductor, a conductor of great esteem, who you'll be able to see in action if you peer over uh, from your seats. Next to him, we've got Nicole King, who has come from Goldsmiths, uh, the part of the University of London, and um, she's an expert in African-American literature and culture. So she's here with some real expertise about the communities that we'll be seeing tonight. <laughs> and finally, we have Nadine Benjamin who you will all see tonight on stage, because she's playing the role of Clara. And um, Nadine is going to have to leave us a little bit early tonight, so if she slips out mid-discussion, you'll know why. She's got a, a makeup and costume call at five o'clock, so we'll let her go. She has to sing for her supper later on, so <laughs> finishing early is fine. Um, so, uh, Porgy and Bess, um, it's a 1935 show, as I'm sure you're all, you all know, um, and it's the third iteration of this particular story. Um, it started life in 1925 as a novel which was written by the South Carolina novelist DuBose Hayward, and it tells the story that he saw every day on the streets, I guess, of uh, his neighbourhood in South Carolina. Uh, in fact, he saw a particular character called Sammy Smalls, who was a disabled beggar who would transport himself around on a small cart pulled by a goat. And this was the inspiration for DuBose Hayward to write the story of this beggar, who he renamed Porgy and uh, to tell the story of this small community, a Gula community from uh, Charleston in South Carolina. And the story is more or less the story that you will see tonight. Partly it's a love story between Porgy and his girlfriend, Bess. Partly it's uh, a tragic story of murder and revenge. And partly it's a story of the community who bond, who work together, who sing together, and of the sort of redemption of the characters of Porgy and Bess as they leave into a, an enigmatic ending at the end of the opera. So 1925, this was a novel. It was a very popular novel, and uh, even from that point, uh, there were indications that it might be musicalised for the stage. Interestingly enough, the first indications of this were that it might be musicalised by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, who you may know uh, wrote a sort of similar folk musical called Showboat, which was a huge sensation in 1927. 
So there was the prospect of perhaps they would team up again to turn this into a musical. Even more interestingly, uh, the star of that prospective musical was mooted to be Al Jolson, who you may know was uh, a singer and performer who specialised in blackface performance, and who also in 1927 had a major hit in Hollywood with the first sound movie, The Jazz Singer. What a different show we would be seeing tonight if it had been written by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein for Al Jolson to sing. We would probably be talking about a different set of themes and issues, and uh, certainly it would have had a very different, different performance history. Well, the show instead was turned into a play in 1927, and it was a play that was written by Dorothy Hayward, who is, was Debose's uh, wife. And uh, that was put on, on Broadway by the Theatre Guild. And again, this was a very successful adaptation of the play. And perhaps one of the reasons that it was very successful was that, uh, because of another collaborator in the project who was called Ruben Mamoulian, uh, a director. He was an Ar Armenian director who had plied his trade in uh, the Eastman Theatre in Rochester, which is in upstate New York. And he'd come up with a particular set of ideas about how theatre works. And he decided that uh, drama is driven by its musicality. It's got a particular rhythm to it, and that the dramaturgy of any show is something which we experience rhythmically. Now, you can kind of see where this is going, can't you? Because when he was invited to direct the play of Porgy, he judged that the play script actually was a little bit uh, linear and literal and dull, and so he characteristically came in and rewrote lots of it, particularly turning it into the structure of the show that you'll see tonight, a structure that is written in nine scenes and what you might think of as four sequences. The first sequence is the sequence where we meet the community of Catfish Row and where the first murder is staged. The second sequence is where the community go for a picnic, um, a celebration on the local island of Kitiwa, the third sequence is when a storm rolls in from the sea, uh, destroying many of the fishing boats and uh, devastating the community. And the final sequence is the redemption sequence where our two main male protagonists meet once again in Catfish Row. And I'm not going to give you a spoiler, but one of them is killed. So there are four sequences. And Ruben Mamoulian um, decided that what would make these sequences work very effectively is if he put into each of them uh, a sort of musicalized section. So we hear in the play, we hear aspects of folk singing during the celebration on the island. We hear a very rhythmical uh, staging of um, what he called an occupational humoresque, the work songs of uh, the community as the fourth sequence begins. And he therefore structures this play as what he saw as a piece of music. So when George Gershwin began to be interested in this piece, he already had a model, a structure for the show that he would create. And you will know that George Gershwin himself had a passionate interest in all sorts of musical styles. 
styles from the classical domain, styles from the, his own Jewish heritage, styles from the African-American community. And all of these were to come together in Porgy and Bess as he adapted that play, Porgy from 1927, into the opera that you see tonight. That's a little bit about the background, but I'm now gonna to turn to my uh, guests here and ask them about their perspectives. And perhaps we should start with the intimation that I've brought up there. Um, perhaps the burning question in the room, we're sitting in an opera house, and yet when Gershwin created this piece, he was very keen for it to appear not at the Met, in New York, but instead on Broadway, produced by the Theatre Guild. In other words, as a musical play rather than an opera. So I'm going to ask John, who's obviously worked with this material, worked with this show, worked with plenty of operas, and uh, has his role here at the Opera House. How, how do you classify this piece? Do you think it is an opera or is it a musical? I think it's a, a, completely an opera. I mean, it's no more a musical than it is a... I mean, it's no more a musical than Tosca's a musical. I, I don't... Uh, Gershwin, when he was... He was criticised when it came out, and he said, it's got songs in it. And he said, yes, it's got songs in it. Um, and I don't mind songs as long as they're good songs. He said, Carmen's full of songs. Rigoletto's full of songs connected with symphonic material, which is exactly what Porgy and Bess is. I want somebody to tell me why... They, I want somebody to tell me what the characteristics of this piece are that even make it even vaguely a musical. That's what I want to know, because I can't see any, and I'm not unfamiliar with it. <laughs> <laughs> of course you're not, and you're uh, far more familiar yeah, you than know, I am. It's, it's written for operatic voices, it's, it's written for operatic forces, mm -hmm. it's written to be completely... It's, it's not amplified in any way. Um, it's completely through composed, apart from a very particular conceit, which is when the white characters come on stage, there is no music and they kind of leech the sort of landscape of any kind of life, which is very particular. It's, it's not, and it's not dialogue either because it's notated speech. Um, so there are arias Ariosos, which may contain uh, music set in the popular idiom of the day, but so does Puccini. So, so does Handel. It's an opera. It's an opera. <laughs> He says that himself as well. He says, you know, this, there, there are folk songs, there are spirituals, but I put it in the structure, structure form of an opera. And, he's, and in, in America, it was seen as the first American opera. So it is a folk opera. And so, Nadine, let me, let me ask you a question about uh, you having the opportunity to perform in this American folk opera. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to you to be able to perform? It's the first time this has been performed at the ENO yeah. in 80 years. What does it mean to you? It's, it's, it's really special. So tonight you're going to see um, a community on stage and that community is really real. Um, you know, have casted singers from Britain, from the UK and from America. 
and all of us have bonded together in this really special voice. Also, all the ensemble are soloists in their, in their own right. So you are dealing with a collection of artists all in their own individual right on stage at the same time. That is so powerful. And we've had the luxury of John Wilson, who is a Gershwin expert, and then the music of this time, who has been really authentic um, and putting his um, ideas through so we can all connect with them in a way that we can explore our musicality. And James Robinson has also done the same thing. So this is a really authentic performance. So I feel like we are making history and... Obviously, e and have this thing that opera is for everybody. And one of the reasons why Gershwin put it in the Theatre Guild was because he didn't want it to go to the opera houses because he wanted it to have more access to the people of the common person walking down the street. He wanted them to have access to this music. And I think we've really done that. That's great. And I can vouch for this because I was uh, lucky enough to see the dress rehearsal the other day in anticipation of this talk. And... Uh, it was uh, full of school kids who had been invited by the ENO to uh, come and see the show. And it really was wonderful to see how these kids from all over London engaged with the drama, with the music, and with a three-hour piece um, in the theatre. I was really impressed I with that. I think you should have kids come to every performance. Yeah. Because they screamed the plays down. They did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> literally, literally screamed the plays down. <laughs> The opening night was dull by comparison. <laughs> Bring the kids back. We should challenge you to uh, be just as vocal. There we go. It's, um, it's wonderful to be reminded of the way in which the, uh, the team are such a community in putting on a show. And of course, that's true right across the arts, um, in film and in theatre and in all sorts of other domains. Um, this is a show which is very much about the community, almost a, an insular community, almost a closed off community. We see very few other people from outside the community who come into it. And um, I'm wondering, Nicole, I'm wondering if this is um, a feature of African American literature uh, in general that uh, it's very uh, organised around the communities. I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that. Um, certainly, it is. It is. It can be a feature. I think um, if you are coming to Porgy and Bess for the first time and 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 love it, and, and you want to read a book. Um, in 1937, Zora Neale Hurston published a book called Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is set in Eatonville, Florida, which was the first incorporated black uh, town in the United States. Um, and it is also a very insular community. Um, and there is murder and mayhem and love and uh, all sorts of things. And it is a classic um, of American literature. So really uh, very closely related uh, to Porgy and Bess in that way. It is a novel, however. Um, but I would say that 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 concern with community actually connects Porgy and Bess to uh, larger American literary themes. Um, mm -hmm. And that idea, I mean, so if you're thinking about people like um, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald in uh, The Great Gatsby, or William Faulkner uh, in The Sound and the Fury, um, even Edith Wharton in, in things like The House of Mirth, um, they are focused uh, in, in 20th century writing on really getting to grips with uh, the specifics of particular 
particular aspects of um, uh, insular communities. So Wharton, of course, is dealing with the uh, extreme upper class of New York society. Uh, Faulkner is dealing with uh, a, a sort of uh, down on its luck Southern family in the aftermath of the end of slavery. Um, and Gatsby, of course, is also dealing, like um, uh, Hayward, with uh, that notion of insiders and outsiders trying to get into a community and also wreaking havoc on particular communities. So in that sense, Porgy and Bess, um, yes, definitely connects to specifics of African-American literature, but also in that very specific historic historical context of, of the 1920s, 1930s, connects to um, broader themes in American literature too. And um, th this community, of course, was uh, not the community from which any of its authors emerged. Gershwin was not a part of this community. DuBose and Dorothy Hayward were, were not a part of the community. They spent time, though, didn't they, uh, travelling to uh, Charleston to, uh, to visit and to immerse themselves. And um, Nadine, you're nodding. I'm wondering if you... Do you, do you know... Uh, about those trips, those yeah, well, they, trips they, they, they rented a space and a place and um, they went to go and stay with the community and um, Gershwin actually, um, it was said that, you know, he, he would sing the spirituals of the Gullah people and he would really become involved. So he became as if he were one with the people um, and I think that's why he's taken the time to be really sensitive with how he's written this piece. And... Um, yeah, I think that's... Yeah. yeah. And, and we see uh, the notion of community, I think, throughout the show. And one of the things which I think is obvious in a way, but uh, really enjoyable, is that you see the community in acts of song together. Um, now, you will see Nadine in an act of song right at the beginning of the show because uh, her character sings perhaps the most famous aria from the opera, Summertime, and so... Uh, we will have the pleasure of hearing Nadine in a, a little bit singing that herself. But there's an example of a song which is a sort of real-world song. You're singing a, a lullaby to your baby. Um, and as we go on through the show, there are other examples of those sort of real-world scenarios. The community are singing celebratory songs. The community are praying together through song. Is there a sense then in which this social act... I'm going to ask John this question. Is there a sense in which song is used throughout Porgy and Bess as part of a social bonding. Yeah, the chorus is, is a really integral part of this piece. You know, Meistersinger was the score you had with him, one of two scores, Meistersinger and uh, Wozzeck were the two scores that Gershwin had with him when he was writing this piece. And uh, they're very good models because Meistersinger is, has has a lot of chorus in it. It's a, another community piece. And so he, he, wanted to, he wanted a template for handling these big choruses. He went to Meistersinger. And a lot of the non-vocal music is inspired very greatly by some of the dissonance in Wozzeck, which Gershwin really gets hold of um, yeah, you, th throughout fight sequences, storm sequences, and things like that. But... Um, Leaving this business of um, community to one side for just a second, you mentioned Gershman went to, 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 to live with the Gullah people and to learn the spirituals and, and all of that. Um, and I think it's important to sort of to, to take note of the fact that, that he was probably the only composer 
alive in the world at the time who could have pulled all of this off, who could have assimilated those spirituals, popular music of the day, large-scale symphonic textures, and, and emerged with all of this. He puts all these into the pot, but it, it comes out as Gershwin. Nobody else. Uh, and I think two reasons for that. One, I think he was uh, intently serious about writing this piece. He knew it was going to be his masterpiece. Uh, and like Schubert and Johann Strauss, Tchaikovsky before him, he was just one of those talented people who wrote, as he said, he, I got up in the morning, he said, I got up in the morning, I write four songs just to get the bad ones out of my system. <laughs> it's the level of invention this piece is stratospherically high. Inspiration doesn't falter ever. Every bar contains something extraordinary. Um, and, you know, he said to Dubose Hayward when he was going to offer the piece to Kern, he said, um, you can give it to Jerome, to Jerry, as he called him, he said, but if you wait till I'm ready to do it, it'll be a labour of love for me. It was a piece he felt he really, he really had to write. Um, but he gets it. He worked so closely with Dubose Hayward, he, 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 he completely got the importance of, of Catfish Row as a central theme in this piece. It even has its own music, you know. It's actually called Cabbage Row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, you mentioned Summertime, which is a very pretty tune, and you sing it divinely. But um, the, the tunes people know of that, and I got plenty of nothing, and my man's gone now. They're, they're, they're great. Um, but the most interesting music, I think, in this whole piece is, and it's three hours, four hours, if you do the whole thing, is, is the connective tissue between, between all of these well-known things, and it's the small ariosos that are absolutely riveting. I, th I think that, um, well, I can't dispute that, that Gershwin's uh, genius, but I also think that Gershwin was in a position uh, to do this show. And um, certainly thinking about 1935, African, well, it would have been called Negro culture, um, was extremely popular. We were just coming through, we were sort of at the end of what's called the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of uh, theatrical, musical, uh, artistic activity. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes called the New Negro Renaissance because it was definitely not confined uh, to Harlem. It was happening in Chicago. And, you know, you may know the 1920s as uh, the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age. Um, all of these um, were in conversation with one another. And I think absolutely Gershwin saw the uh, extraordinary uh, depth and complexity um, of African-American culture and, and, and put that into uh, the opera. But I would, I would it became, venture- it became a part of him. It did it become a part of him, but I would venture that there were probably um, throughout, uh, uh, you know, not, not perhaps hundreds or, or, or 50, but there were um, artists uh, who did not have the means that a Gershwin did or the connections that a Gershwin did to get their productions um, staged. Well, what I meant when did. I said that was that I, there, were lots, there were other popular composers, people like Harold Allen, who completely assimilated lots of other cultures, jazz cultures in particular, but Gershwin was the only one who could, who could work with authority mm -hmm. and finesse in all those styles. Mm -hmm. You know, with, mm -hmm. 
in jazz, in symphonic music, and how he could orchestrate. And so he was, he had, it was like he had the complete package. It was all the skills. And he was a genius. <laughs> in my opinion, you, we've got to remember that also that Gershwin was Jewish as well. And I do feel, um, in my humble opinion, that he had an affinity of and wanted to, a way to get his voice heard. And I think through writing this opera, he was able to kind of negotiate all the feelings that he was having about his community and the dangers that they were facing at that time, because that was, that was the beginning of that. So there certainly is a real eclectic uh, set of styles within the show. And as you've mentioned, he's uh, uh, virtuoso with the classical music, with the jazz music, um, with various things. I wonder if you could um, talk to us a little bit about how that becomes used dramatically. In other words, are there particular um, choices he makes about when to use a particular style of music um, are they character choices? Are they choices around moments in the drama? There are leitmotifs, for sure. Mm -hmm. There are themes which are associated with, for instance, place, catfish row, um, drugs, happy dust. There's a happy dust motif. Every time somebody has some happy dust, there's a little flute thing. <laughs> on the, uh, but he's, he's not doing anything new. He's got something new to say, but the models are kind of there, established. You know, you know he and he even look, he looks on the page. The first, the end of the first scene in the first act, which is marked con grande espressione, it looks like Puccini on the page. And he's taken the models he revered, and he's used a mold of sorts, and he's done what the great masters did before him and I think that's why it works I think it's innovative in substance I, I he's got they've both got something original to say but the the form is 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 sort of kind of tried and tested and 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 the best model to take mm -hmm. it's a proper opera so um that's why it works. But he does make every character completely individual through the music as well, and I think, and I think that's why the the ensemble, are, as um, John was saying earlier, are really integral to the piece, because their motif is just explosive, you know. And um, I think he just wants every person in the theatre to be able to identify with somebody in the piece. And I think you know it's about a piece about humanity and human beings, and I think he really wanted to get that across. I'm, I'm aware of the time for Nadine. It's just coming up to five, so I think we might have to say goodbye, but I think Bye. we should certainly thank <laughs> Nadine for her. So it's clear that um, the piece, um, in terms of its music, is something which has the sophistication and the class to last the test of time. Um, but it seems to me that there's, there's also uh, a set of themes in the show which are extraordinarily contemporary, perhaps surprisingly contemporary. I was reminded of this really um, at the dress rehearsal the other day, surrounded by 14 and 15 year olds from the schools who really engaged with the show. Now maybe that's because there's 
examples of knife crime in it. Maybe that's because there's a dealer who's dealing coke. Maybe these are images that they're familiar with from television and from today's world. But I wonder if you have feelings about whether the show's storyline and characters hold those sort of contemporary, timeless, maybe universal qualities? We were talking about this a little bit before the, the talk started. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is, um, you know, um, uh, violence, crime, love, redemption, as, as we were saying uh, earlier. And these are the aspects of any great drama um, and uh, definitely, obviously, great, great opera as well. Um, so, yes, I, I do think that those particular themes um, and the way in which... Um, Hayward and, and Gershwin uh, present them to the audience um, makes them slightly not <laughs> hello again uh, slightly non-specific right to uh, yeah. Catfish Row. Um, I think on the other hand, uh, we were mentioning uh, the Gullah community uh, earlier, and I'm not sure how much uh, the audience here understands of what that actually is. Um, and it is this insular uh, 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 black community in, in the uh, South Carolinas and in uh, Southern Florida, um, which was so insular that, that as a culture, it really was able to retain many aspects um, of, of cultures brought with the enslaved peoples from mostly from West African regions. Um, and that affects their speech, that affects uh, the sorts of things that you probably will see the community doing on stage. Um, uh, it also connects them very much to, to the enslaved people that were taken to the Caribbean. Um, so if you look at that southern region, including New Orleans in, in, in the US, there are a lot of similarities uh, to different uh, parts of the Caribbean. Um, where, of course, the, 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 um, uh, the ratios of, of uh, different uh, uh, ethnic and racial communities was very different from the United States. So the, the, um, uh, the Caribbean would be majority uh, black as opposed to uh, a minority community in the U.S. And I think these things are actually captured in uh, the vocalizations, in the way in which uh, language, uh, Creole languages, are, are actually inserted uh, into the drama. Um, so there are, so it's both at the same time, mm -hmm. right? There are these universal themes that all of us um, who've ever enjoyed a good story uh, will be able to connect with immediately. But layered upon that are very specific aspects, and some people um, would say stereotypes. Um, so the specific aspects of uh, South Carolina and Gullah community, as well as uh, at what in 1935 would have been very recognizable stereotypes of the sort of flatness um, of black characters. And because I think of what we've been listening to in terms of the genius of what Gershon does with the music, we don't get flat characters on the stage. Um, and that's not the, I don't think that will be the experience that you have uh, this evening. The music does elevate everything. I know it's, stating the bleeding obvious, but it's because the music is so good all the time that this is a, a big, that, that this opera gets done. I mean, that's, uh, the, the, it's like when you do Carmen and you turn the page and there's, well, it's just something else to look forward to. You know, there's 700 pages in this opera and every time you turn one of the pages, it's, oh, I like this bit. <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much great music in it. And if you, if you only know the, the, the as I say, the, the, the well-known tunes in it, then there's so many more riches to mm. discover. Mm. It's 
Yeah. But you know, it's, it's a modern piece. It's like you say how contemporary it feels, but it's 1935, and that's in in the history of kind of Western art music and the canon, the operatic canon. It's it's modern enough, you know. It's certainly after the when did things in the 1920s there was a kind of like revolution of modernity, particularly in America, and this is this was fresh then and fresh now. I think, I think as well, um, you know, it, when we're using shorthand, uh, we, we talk about opera as classical music. Um, and jazz, of course, is understood and now recognized as America's classical music. And that comes from black people. Um, and that comes, it is not just uh, uh, musical instruments and the musical history that is brought from Africa, but it's the way in which black people um, and enslaved people uh, combine that with, for instance, the um, tradition of uh, uh, brass orchestras and brass music. Um, I'm sure you've heard New Orleans jazz. Um, that's very much about the way in which brass uh, uh, instruments from places like England uh, ended up there um, and, and was revised. So again, I think it's really extraordinary what Gershwin does in combining these two classical traditions. Um, there was something else I was going to say, but I've forgotten now. What I, what I would say just to amplify that is but that's what New York at that period was all about. You basically have African-American jazz on the one hand and European operetta mm -hmm. on the other, and you think, surely, oil and water, these two can't mix, but you get all the right people in this, all, this, all the right people at the same place at the same time in between, you know, 19, sort of, say, take sure, but as the starting, but 1927, and for about three decades after that, you, you have a new music which is created, which is the fusion of these elements. And it's one of the richest themes in all music, not just classical music or pop music or jazz. It's now the next really serious area of musical scholarship. You know, people are making critical editions of Gershwin's music, critical edition of Kiss Me Kate, critical edition of Showboat. These are the important uh, stage pieces of this century, last century. And um, this, of course, now is uh, coming over here, uh, and this American type of music, which, of course, was hugely popular in the 30s and 40s in America, very quickly became popular over here as well. And this is a, a show now which um, hasn't been put on at this particular theatre. It has been staged in, in the UK before. Um, but what does it mean, do you think, for these, these very American communities, and in particular the African-American uh, communities, to have the chance to come over here and be recognised? Particularly, I'm thinking, in front of uh, audiences which will, I'm, I'm assuming will be a majority white audience in this theatre. What's at stake there? What's gained? Well, it's interesting what Nadine said about the, the cast that you'll see tonight, right? That, that is already a transnational and international cast, right? It's not just an American cast transposed to, to London. Um, uh, and I think... Twelve South Africans in it. There's it? South Africans, there are uh, black British, there are uh, uh, African-American um, cast members. So I think, I think that is uh, perhaps very true to the spirit of, of, of the production and um, just from what her, uh, Nadine's opening comments that it has been a very uh, special um, uh, uh, 
happening for them as artists. I think, yes, you know, most of, uh, probably this is true in, in New York as well, that most of the audience uh, for operas are going to be, um, of, you know, ethnically white in some way or another. Um, and they're looking at uh, an all black cast. I think in some ways it's, it's going to be very similar to the 1930s in that respect. Um, in other ways, as I said earlier, there are going to be stereotypes of, uh, you know, black people as violent, black people as drug dealers, black people as uh, uh, perhaps particularly sexually expressive, and these, were vi these continue to be extraordinarily demeaning stereotypes that you see in popular culture um, that you sometimes hear people like, the American president, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, promulgating. Um, so they haven't gone anywhere, right? These ways of looking at, at, at black people as very flat, uh, singular characters, that th those stereotypes are very much with us. But again, I think in terms of the conversation that we've been having, is that I don't think, even if that's perhaps even, um, you know, you don't want that stereotype to be familiar to you, that is not the stereotype that you'll leave the theater with tonight because of all of the other layers of artistic experience um, that you will find. And I just, I just want to say again that, that the uh, way in which, um, you know, black culture was so popular in the 1920s and 30s has not dissipated, right? We can, again, see many, many aspects of that um, and the way in which black culture becomes American culture without necessarily um, attribution, right, of, of where it came from. That is, those, all of those things are very familiar. And I think, actually, to, to think about the political implications of art is not a problem. We should do that, right? And we should think about that and we should ask, you know, why are these audiences for this particular music mostly white? And as, you know, the, the, uh, the ENO is, you know, they're bringing in uh, school groups who would not necessarily usually come to see opera and that's who you have to emulate when you're listening tonight with lots of uh, audience <laughs> participation. Um, and I think that's, that's where the real work is. Um, not necessarily bashing uh, Gershwin. Um, lots, of, lots of people have criticized him and talked about the way in which he appropriated uh, rhythms, sounds, melodic structures without attribution to that community that he did extraordinarily meticulous research in. Miles Davis, who, if you have not listened to Miles Davis on his trumpet playing the score of Porgy and Bess, very famously says, this is a, uh, a piece that has, this is a, a group of pieces that has terrible politics, but amazing, beautiful music, right? And he inhabits that dichotomy, and I think we should too. John, you've got uh, 700 pages to wade through tonight. I'm intrigued to know if you've got a favorite page. What's, what's the moment? that you really encourage us to look out for or listen out for? Uh, it's very difficult to answer that question because there are, there are so many great things. Um, I like, I love the final scene, the first, act one, scene one, the end of that, yeah. uh, the little Puccini bit. I like that. Um, I love the trio, uh, Bess, oh, where's my Bess? Um, and, you know, it, 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 as you were talking there, I, I, I'm, I, I'm sort of uh, absorbing what you're saying. Of course, what Gershwin 
did over a much longer period, and, and, and Harold Arlen really did it especially well, is this uh, African-American jazz became part of the sort of the, the fabric of their, of their own voice. So how, at what point do you kind of separate uh, what, that's what is Gershwin? And I think it's, it's why this piece is uh, honest musically. That's, it, it's, he's, he's being himself. And when I go, goes back to what I said before, and I said, I think he's the only person in the world who, who could have done it. He's not, he's not sort of, none of it is sort of secondhand or insincere. It's, it's, it's a, a, a musical language which he assimilated over decades, over, over say, two decades. Um, and within the parameters of, organized notation and, and operatic format, I think, I think he, he pulls it off really honestly, mm -hmm. just from a completely musical point of view, yeah. just the notes. And of course, that music really would be crystallized as the Gershwin sound, because mm -hmm. as you will know, less than two years later, Gershwin died. Uh, still a very young man, aged 39, I think he was when he died. Um, yeah. This really was his swan song, his uh, great piece that has stood the test of time and unfortunately it was his last major contribution. It's the, it's the, we were so robbed, I, mean, you know, I know Mozart died early and Schubert, but Mozart wrote loads. Um, <laughs> Gershwin was just getting started, it's so tragic, it really is, so tragic. Um, I think we might have time for a, a question from the floor or two. Um, yes, sir. Uh, thinking about the jazz influence uh, on, on this piece, uh, are there times when you want to go off track and improvise and... Absolutely not. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'd say, I, I, from my point of view, I think this score is meticulously dotated. Every single last staccato dot has to be observed. But there are traditions in this piece from the vocal uh, departments which have connections with people who originated the roles. What was the name of that Bubbles who did Sporting Life? I can't remember his first name. Charles W. Bubbles. I don't remember. But he was known to... to I don't know what his name was. What was it? No, he was Porgy. But the guy who did Sporting Life uh, was known to go off on sort of vocal decorations in the jazz idiom. And... Um, that tr those traditions have been passed down the line, so you will hear that tonight. Um, but we mustn't uh, overplay the whole jazz thing, because remember it's 1934, and I think the one, there, are, there are earlier influences which are, are more apparent, like ragtime. And I mean, we mustn't forget Scott Joplin, who was just about the most important influence on everybody Absolutely. before all of this. And without ragtime, you wouldn't have this piece at but, all. but also, I think unpicking the um, the sort of antecedents of jazz and in including ragtime is is what you'll see in terms of African American spiritual traditions, right? So just literally the call and response, right? The the um, uh, which is 
you know, has probably another term yeah. in terms no, of opera. No, you're right. I've never thought of it before. Um, but, but, right, but, yeah. up, but call and response, I mean, if you've ever seen um, uh, uh, an Afro, you, if, let's say if you watched the uh, most recent royal wedding um, and that, that sermon, um, that, that uh, uh, the, the minister was looking for a response, right? You know, you know. Uh, good morning. You, you know, you walk into a church and, you know, the minister says good morning. The congregation says good morning back, right? So let's try that. Good morning. <laughs> so this is this is or good evening. This is this is call and response, and that is all over um, jazz, right? So that idea of the soloist um, working in an ensemble, uh, they, they begin together. The soloist goes off. He is um, or she is uh, keeping a, a, a line in terms of the melodies, but also improvising on that line, and then gets inserted back into the community. Those musical traditions are all about the story of, of Porgy and Bess, and I suspect uh, map very cleanly onto uh, specific aspects of, of operatic traditions as well. Have we got time for one more? One more question then, sir. Um, you have opened my idea, uh, eyes to the influence of Berg Wojciech on uh, Gershwin while writing this. Um, and in particular in the storm scene. Can you amplify that theme, explain perhaps what it is, and even perhaps demonstrate on the piano? No, I'm not playing the piano. <laughs> I think he was looking for a way to expand his own harmonic language within the parameters of this operatic form, the harmonic palette that was available to him. And I just, f I, I suspect Wozzeck was a very, well, first of all, he loved it. He was passionate about the piece. And, and it's actually, it's a very good fit because harmonically, if you look at Gershwin's own language, it's saturated with um, dominant 13th, sharp ninth chords, flat tenths, if you want to call them that. And that's very much the typical, inverted commas, Gershwin sound. But there are things in, say, the storm music and, and, and other bits, but the storm particular, which, which use uh, parallel seconds and sort of uh, strange dissonant intervals, which are related harmonically to what Gershwin had already. And, and, and there the parallels are. But without manuscript paper and... Uh, and uh, yeah, I can't get into it. I have to go and conduct this now. Would you excuse me? Well, unfortunately, um, we've come to the point where we have to uh, close our discussion for today. I'm sure you'll agree it's been most illuminating and I'm really grateful to our three contributors here. Um, we've, we've already said goodbye to Nadine, but to Nicole King and to John Wilson, please put your hands together.